Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohallam. Today, we're bringing you a little bit of hope and inspiration in some unexpected forms. Yes, the form of the spookfish, the great gray owl, the star-nosed mole, even the much-maligned vampire bat. It turns out creatures like these have much to teach us, both about the wonders of species all around us and about our own hidden powers. Uh, Just hearing the words hidden powers gets me so excited. (laughs) (laughs) So in a new book called Sentient, writer Jackie Higgins does a phenomenal job exploring the sensory capabilities of 13 animals and considering how those extraordinary powers help us better understand similar skills that often lie dormant within us. Each animal is just incredible, and we loved getting to talk to Jackie about many of them and about the surprising insights we can gain from them about ourselves, and also about the practical applications of this knowledge, because understanding the capabilities of these animals is even at times helping scientists as they try to address problems like noise pollution, for example. I loved hearing what Jackie has to say, and I love her book. It is filled with fascinating detail after fascinating detail. It offers knowledge and discernment and hope, and it is written beautifully. The Washington Post calls Sentient a, quote, masterpiece of science and nature writing, and I think for good reason. Yeah. Jackie is a graduate of Oxford University with an MA in zoology and has worked for Oxford Scientific Films for over a decade, along with National Geographic, PBS Nova, and the Discovery Channel. She's also written, directed, and produced films at the BBC Science Department. We started by asking Jackie about a near soundless creature with an astounding ability to locate far away, even hidden prey. There are so many incredible animals detailed in your book that it's hard to choose, but I think that my new favorite might be the great gray owl. You write, on a still moonlit night where snow blankets the landscape and deadens sound, the owl swoops on its quarry and barely breaks the silence. The quietness of the owl's flight is unrivaled. Its wing beat makes a sound so soft that it's nearly imperceptible. The great gray is neither seen nor heard, and this natural specter also seems endowed with a supernatural sense. From a distance of some 30 meters or 100 feet, it can pinpoint mice or voles with uncanny precision, even those hidden beneath mounds of virgin snow. I want to talk about both its soundlessness and this uncanny precision in hunting. What have scientists discovered about how these owls are able to fly in silence? Yes, scientists are looking at this acoustic stealth. Professor Nigel Peake at Cambridge University in collaboration with other teams from around the world. Um, And they're looking at the feather's structure and its shape. We've long known that the wings leading and trailing edges have these tiny stiff barbs that point upwards like the teeth of a comb to dampen the turbulence. But Peak is fascinated by the fact that when you run your hand and stroke an owl's wing, it's super luxuriant to touch. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It feels, it feels amazing. Mm-hmm. So he was 
fascinated by this, basically this fine fluff. He looked at it under a microscope, as have others now, and he could see that each feather, they're covered with hairs. These tiny hairs rise straight up like trees, and then they keen over to form a forest. And so this, um, this fine fluff also dampens the turbulence. And this basically makes sure that the owl can fly completely silently. And the reason the scientists are interested in this is to copy it. There's this wonderful discipline called biomimicry, where scientists are looking at biology and trying to mimic what, what these animals or plants do for our own worlds. And so the aim with the owl is to make our world silent. You know, if we could replicate what the owl's done with its wings and with its feathers on the surface of wind turbines or computer fans or those passenger planes that crisscross the skies, we would get rid of sound pollution. Mm. And are we, <laughs> how are we doing? How's that, how's that going? Well, we're right at the beginning, aren't we? So they've patented um, this surface and they've proved that this surface does reduce sound. So now someone's got to kind of invest in it and, you know, replicate it on jumbo jets. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Let's talk a little about the great gray owl's astonishing ability to pinpoint the location of far away, even hidden prey. Scientists suggested in the past that several senses contributed to this ability, smell, the detection of body heat, the raw dense retinas of the owl's enormous eyes, helping with night sight. Would you please tell us how Mark Kanishi settled that question with an experiment in, quote, a pitch black room with a camera, infrared strobe lights, an owl named Roger, and a tethered mouse? (laughs) (laughs) I love the story. (laughs) I mean, this is what scientists do. This is what scientists, they have ideas and they set out to prove them. I mean, let's start with the owl named Roger. The owl was named after Roger Payne, who was an American biologist. And he was the man who essentially inspired Mark Konishi. He'd given a lecture and he'd mentioned that lovely great grey owl's snow plunge. Um, and he said because of the great grey owl, it had to be sound that these owls were using. They couldn't see the mouse because it was hidden by that mound of snow. They couldn't sense its heat because that would have been eliminated by the ice of the snow. Um, so he went through the, the various senses and he, he decided it had to be sound. So Mark picked up the baton and he took that pitch black room. The camera with infrared strobe lights meant that the room wouldn't light up when it was being photographed. The tethered mouse is brilliant because apparently they started the experiments without tethering the mouse, um, much to the shock and horror of the other people in the laboratory because the mice escaped. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So, um, and they took photographs and he did a really cool thing as well. He soundproofed the floor using foam to absorb the pitter-patter of the mouse as it scooted around and he tied a piece of paper to its tail And that paper did rustle because the paper was rustling against itself. And the owl, every single time, swooped on that piece of paper. And the only way that it could have sensed that piece of paper was through the sound. So there we go. That's how he proved that these birds are using sound. 
Isn't that ingenious? Yeah, <laughs> I, love that. Genius. I love that. Ingenious. <laughs> and so much fun. And it shows the process of science, you know, how you go down one route and then you realize it hasn't eliminated a certain factor. So you then go down an, another route. I can almost see the cogs of his brain turning. Right. Mm-hmm. You write that we tend to underestimate the power of our own hearing, which is in fact superb. I want to read what you wrote about the experience of people who've spent time in echo-free chambers designed to approach silence. Gentle inhalations and exhalations around 10 decibels are said to sound like Darth Vader's stertorous rasps. Heartbeats, mere decibels, thud. As minutes pass, the people spending time in these chambers describe sounds beyond these more obvious bodily commotions. They say, I started to hear the blood rushing in my veins. Your ears become more sensitive as a place gets quieter and mine were going overtime. I frowned and heard my scalp moving over my skull, which was eerie. Yet the range and sensitivity of owls hearing surpasses ours. So Two questions. What do scientists believe accounts for owls' extraordinary power of hearing? And without getting technical, could you maybe give us an example or two of something an owl can hear that we humans can't? Sure. So um, scientists have found that owls can hear sounds 20 decibels quieter than us. In fact, that was Mark Kanishi's work. Without getting technical, I mean, we just have to think to the great grey, which can hear a mouse rustling or squeaking under a mound of snow from 30 meters away yeah so that gives you a sense of how much more um sensitive they are to volume um professor christine koppel who is studying at the oldenburg university over in germany more than any other person she's looked at the owl's inner ear and um you might think that their inner ears are more sensitive than ours given the owl can hear 20 decibels quieter than us. But what's extraordinary is she's found that the structure is remarkably similar to ours. So what they've now realized is that it's the owl's face that enables them to hear these quieter sounds. Those wide dish-like faces, they serve a purpose. They act like a parabolic reflector. And so they scoop up all these sounds from the environment and they channel them to the ear. The owl's face is essentially collecting the sound vibrations to make sure that those vibrations travel down its inner ear and tickle its, um, its little sensitive hearing hair cells. Um, so I had this notion, or I, you know, I was chatting to Christine about, you know, so if I... Um, if I kind of return to Victorian times and put an ear trumpet against my ear, would that then plunge me into the whispering world of owls? And she essentially said, yes, that's what they're doing. So they have these dishes on their faces, but we can walk around with Victorian ear trumpets. (laughs) I may die of amazement. I can't stop thinking about how scientists might be able to get rid of sound pollution by copying the fine fluff of the wings of the great gray owl. I looked up biomimicry really quickly. Scientists are learning from termites how to create sustainable buildings. They're learning from the mantis shrimp how to reduce the weight of cars and aircraft, which lessens their carbon footprint. I mean, when I am reincarnated, Eve, I want to come back as a biomimicry scientist, okay? (laughs) Absolutely. But only if I can come back as a paleoanthropologist. Mm, Okay. Mm. But wait a second. How do termites, which usually destroy buildings, help us create sustainable buildings? Is this an example of using evil powers for doing good? Well, 
it turns out termite mounds, those mud towers where they live, are incredibly efficiently constructed. Those mounds are really good, too, at storing and releasing heat, which is inspiring human building designs that slash energy costs. I mean, unbelievable. (laughs) And while we're on this episode long topic of really cool animals, can we talk for a second about the four eyed spookfish? It lives in the depths of the ocean. I love what Jackie says about the world down there. She says, it's perhaps the most lightless place on our planet, yet it teems with unblinking non-human eyes. Mm. The eyes of the four-eyed spookfish are really cool. They're all shaped like telescopes. The two on top have lenses, but the two on bottom are actually just mirrors that reflect back at the retina, the rare photons that they detect. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. We just have to stop for a minute. They have two eyes on their bottom sides that are mirrors. I think it's the first instance, maybe the only instance of scientists ever finding mirrors in eyes. Something like that. Some crazy statistic. You can look at the book to find out. So cool. And it sounds so alien to us. But in fact, there's a key similarity between the spookfish and the human eye one that confirms a sensory power we actually have, but don't often use. We talked to Jackie about that. As different from our own human eyes as the eyes of the spookfish might seem, it turns out one aspect at least is nearly identical to ours. Our eyes have cones for daylight vision and rods for twilight and night vision. Spookfish have no cones, only rods, but the structure of our rods and their rods turns out to be surprisingly similar. What are scientists beginning to understand about the power of our twilight and nighttime vision? And can you give the example of Professor Andrew Stockman in the Black Forest and say whether there's any reason to believe his power of night vision was better than average? So Andrew, who's now a professor at University College London's Institute of Ophthalmology, was working in Freiburg at the time. This was in the 1990s. And he would go jogging after long days in the laboratory. And he'd go jogging in the Black Forest. And to put this in perspective as to how dark it is, on nights with a full moon, light levels are a million times dimmer than at midday. On moonless, clear, starlit nights, they're a hundred million times dimmer still. And under a thick canopy of, say, that forest, they're a hundred times darker still. So when he was jogging through the Black Forest, he was going through areas that are as dark as the deep ocean. So he could see in light levels a billion times dimmer than daylight. And his eyes are not special. They're just like yours. They're just like mine. Um, If you think of rods and cones like colour film and black and white film, The cones are our color film and they give us sharp color vision. And the rods are the black and white film and they give us grainy monochrome night vision. And what Andrew found when he was jogging is as his eyes acclimatized, he actually could see the path that he was jogging along relatively um, with ease. And it looked a little bit slow and it looked a bit grainy and it was in black and white, obviously. So he knew this trick that the ancient astronomers had used, which was when you're trying to see a really dim and distant star, you look to the side of it. um, And that means that that one photon or few photons from that dim, distant star will hit the side of your retina. And that's where your rods are. 
he would look at the path askance, as it were. And I didn't believe him when he said this. So I remember lying in bed one night, I was in the countryside and a thin sliver of light was coming through my curtain. Otherwise, the room was absolutely dark. And when I was staring directly at this thin slither of light, I couldn't see it. And then when Mm. I averted my gaze, it came to my eyes. I could see it. I could perceive it. Mm -hmm. So the fastest killer in the animal kingdom is, bizarrely, the star-nosed mole. As you put it in the book, an eye blink lasts at most 300 milliseconds. Yet this creature can identify, capture, and consume its prey in less than half this time. Among many odd features, the star-nosed mole has 22 blood-engorged fleshy tentacles that radiate from its nostrils and that move so fast as to be a blur as the mole moves down a tunnel, touching up to a dozen objects every second, identifying what might be food. Can you tell us why scientists investigating the mole's brain have concluded that although its snout may resemble a hand, it acts like an eye? I can. So Ken Catania, who is at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, is the world expert on these wonderful creatures. He studied how they forage. And he's seen that this nose, which is not really used for smelling, but for touching, he's filmed these creatures using their star to feel their way through their burrow. So in that sense, the star resembles a hand. The hand is feeling its way through their burrow. Their eyes aren't up to much, and they use those little fleshy tentacles, its star, to essentially feel its way through a burrow and find its little, you know, its prey, little worms or whatnot. But he also then looked at the creature's brain, and that's when the story gets completely bizarre, because the brain suggests that this star acts more like an eye. So let me explain that. When he looked at the brain of this creature, he found an outline of its body essentially embedded across its cortex, its brain. That's just like us. We also have the same mirror image of our body, which is a touch map, which is on our touch cortex. But the areas of our body where we feel touch more, those areas in our brain are enlarged. So same too for the mole. So when he looked at this drawing of the mole on its brain, the body was small, but there was a massive star. So half of its whole body map is its star. And a quarter of this star is just one pair, the smallest pair, the 11th pair of feelers. And that's the most important because that little pair is what feels the worm just before it enters the mole's mouth. Is this good to eat or is this not good to eat? The others catch the worm. But that 11th pair is super important. It acts more like an eye because it has a fovea, just like our retina has a fovea, which enables it to really um, translate its environment and perceive its environment. And there's also some remarkable evidence that the human hand can act like an eye. Would you please tell the story of Eshref Armigan, the renowned congenitally blind visual artist, and what scans of his brain teach us? Eshref is amazing, and he's been blind since birth. He went to Harvard a few years ago to have his brain scanned while he was feeling objects and then drawing them. And the brain scan taught us two things. First of all, Eshref has always said that feeling my way with my fingers has erased my blindness. It's as if I see like everyone else, which is an extraordinary thing to say. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing, the more scientific aspect, is that 
these scans proved how neuroplastic our brain is. So let me explain. When Eshref was in the scanner, as I said, touching objects and drawing them, um, the scientists were looking at what parts of his brain were activated and where the sensory information was being processed. And Alvaro Pascual Leon, who was one of the scientists there, he told me that if you were to see Eshref's scan, not knowing what's going on, you'd say this person is seeing something. The scans proved that Eshref's sense of touch has co-opted his visual cortex. You know, essentially it proved Eshref right. He is seeing with his fingers. And the reason he's able to do that is because not just his brain, but all our brains are incredibly neuroplastic. And just to be clear for our listeners who might not know, Eshref's drawings were incredibly accurate, right? He would hold an apple and create something that looked exactly like an apple. Yes, they're wonderful. His drawings are incredible. And he drew me an apple and I watched him draw this apple. He's got perspective. He's able to translate our three-dimensional world onto two-dimensional paper in a way that totally makes sense to us. He had to be taught about colors because of course he's never seen colors. He had to be taught about that. But the ability to just get perspective is extraordinary. And that is something he's doing through feeling, topographical, three-dimensional feeling. And he's translating that into two-dimensional images that make sense to us. I'd love it if you could tell us, too, about the study of volunteers who agreed to be confined, blindfolded in a hospital bed for five days with no access to light. What do changes shown in the scans of their brains tell us about possible mistakes that we're making in the way that we look at the brain? Yes. So this was the experiment I was referring to earlier that Alvaro Pascual Leon did. He promised um, people an amazing experience by making them blind for five days. So he blindfolded them and to make sure that they didn't cheat and peek occasionally, he put photographic paper on the underside of the blindfold. And he set them on a task to learn Braille. What often happens is if you deprive a sense organ of its sensory information, strange things start to happen. So quite a few of these very brave volunteers started to hallucinate. Some say that when they faced the mirror, they were washing their hands in the sink or whatever, and they were facing the mirror, they swore they saw their face in the mirror and that their face was wearing a blindfold. So these hallucinations <laughs> were extraordinary. This is what our brain does. Our brain plays with us. Interestingly, Oliver Sacks in his book, uh, Musicophilia, talks about this as well. When people go deaf, they can get plagued by really annoying music, sometimes beautiful classical songs, but sometimes terrible lift music. Sacks calls them release hallucinations. Anyway, back to your question. Uh, essentially, they learned two things. They learned that five days was all it takes for someone to learn how to read Braille. But they also learned, and Pascual Leon was himself staggered by this, that on the second day, the brain began to change. When they scanned these volunteers' brains, they could see changes. And by day five, those brains, people who normally see, were behaving just like Ashraf's. They were seeing with the tip of their finger. So when they were feeling Braille, their visual cortex was lighting up. So... This neuroplasticity that is part of all our brains is incredibly rapid and versatile. That is amazing. Yeah. 
I'm having second thoughts about asking about this next animal that I want to talk about because it's so revolting, but um, (laughs) it's just so revolting, but we don't tend to shy away from revolting here on book dreams. So here goes. No, Some of us really like revolting. (laughs) 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 Um, Yes. We're going to talk about vampire bats. Here is an excerpt of your description of them in the book. With a throat too narrow to swallow solid food, it survives solely on a liquid diet of blood. It is the only mammalian sanguivore known to science. A pair of razor-edged upper incisors can puncture the tough hides of horses and cows with ease. Then, over the course of 20 to 30 minutes, the bat sips leisurely at their blood through two straw-shaped ducts on the underside of its tongue. If that weren't disgusting enough, it turns out they share the blood that they have drunk with other bats, whether the bats are related to them or not related to them. So basically one bat grooms another bat, you cleaning the other bat, helping it to clean, clean. And then as a kind of thank you, the groomed vampire bat vomits up a little of the blood that it drank earlier so that the groomer vampire bat can lick it up. So would you please tell us what could possibly account for this behavior and what connection does it have to humans? So when people learned that vampire bats share, it was a big discovery. They've had such a bad press, but they're very caring and very sharing. Because if they don't regurgitate that blood, their neighbor will die because um, those that haven't eaten do die. But what's interesting, and the reason I use this example is the blood sharing, as you alluded to, is mediated through touch, through the stroking and the licking and the grooming. And the bat enabled me to talk about uh, what it feels like to be touched. It's about feelings over facts. And I go into this phenomenon that's been called the Midas touch that's long been documented. It's called the Midas touch after the mythological Greek king whose touch turned all to gold. And scientists have done all these extraordinary studies showing how susceptible we are to the most casual of touches. I give the example of this study that was done on tipping. Basically, the scientists found that when the waitress casually touched the the, uh, person who she was serving a drink to, you know, on the hand or whatever, she would get a bigger tip. And there are all these extraordinary studies showing how casual touch makes people more generous. Apparently, a bus driver is more likely to give someone a free ride. Someone is more likely to say yes to being asked for a cigarette. People report being more satisfied with a pitch from a secondhand car salesman. I mean, we are really swayed by touch touch is really important to us as social creatures. We're learning one amazing thing after another in this episode. Our powers of vision, night vision at least, are far better than we realize. Same with hearing. I mean, can you imagine frowning and hearing your scalp move over your skull? I I mean, no, I can't. But now I want to try. I want to go somewhere totally soundless and listen to my scalp. Yeah, Me too, me too. And we're more connected by the sense of touch than I ever realized. I mean, the tests for make it feel like it's a sense 
that could be easily manipulable, you know, touch me on the arm, I'm more likely to pay more than I should for a used car. Yeah, but you're also likely to leave bigger tips and give people free rides. So it's a force for good as well as evil, much like the humble termite. Yes, exactly. And we need those forces for good more than ever nowadays. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Jackie on Twitter at Jackie Higgins underscore. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.